Lord, I, I thank you for, for this conference, and I and, uh, thank you for giving us the opportunity to come out here and speak, Lord. And, you know, we see the hearts of, of, of so many people here, Lord, that we've gotten to talk to over the last day. And, Lord, I, I just uh, ask you to use this church in a mighty way going forward and, and just continuing to to use this as the light in, in, in the darkness here in this city, Lord, and be able to go out and share your word and share the truth of who you are, Lord, and that you are the only, the only God, Lord, and that Christianity is the only true religion, Lord. It's the only worldview that is out there, Lord, that is correct. Lord, I just ask that uh, it says your words are not mine that come out, Lord, and that, uh, that those words can penetrate all of our hearts and our minds, Lord, to be able to go out to use and, uh, and to continue to witness in your name. In your name we pray. Amen. So for what we're going to be covering today is the references I used are from Answers in Genesis, Creation Ministries International, and Creation Training Initiative um, with Mike Riddle. And then you'll find all these things in greater detail in my book in the back. So I'm going to start off with a question. How do stoplights change colors? You probably never have heard a Christian talk start that way before. <laughs> so how do they change? Give me some answers. Electronics, right? sensors, software. I mean, lots of great answers, right? Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Genesis is always the answer. <laughs> That's great. That's the best answer I've heard. <laughs> so this is, this is a question I ask on college campuses a lot. Because what I realize is that almost everybody I talk to on a college campus is postmodernist. They're a relativist. So I ask this question, and, and I get all these wonderful answers, and then I say, that sounds pretty good, but it's not what I believe. See, I believe that a little monkey lives in every stoplight and changes the colors periodically. Now tell me I'm wrong. Thank you, because I don't hear that on college campuses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wish I was kidding. It is, it is absolutely shocking that I hear this, and it's they're trained to not tell people they're wrong. That we can all have our own truths. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Right? So welcome to, again, postmodernism, relativism. It can get worse. <laughs> I'll point it to the sky and I'll say, if I told you that the sky was blue... Yeah, is that easy? How about this? All right. What if I told you the sky is green? Would I be wrong? Right? Now, more than half the time, they tell me, no, nah, if that's what you believe. Right? I mean, it doesn't matter what you bring up. They do this. Now, of course, I use this to turn the tables on them within, within just a minute or so. Because once, once you realize they're a relativist and they're willing to tell you that it's okay that you believe a little monkey lives in a stoplight and it changes colors periodically, once they tell you it's okay that, well, you might see green, even if I see blue, someone else could see red, and it doesn't matter, you know, it's your perception, whatever. I go, so, so let me get this straight. Let's pretend you're driving in a car with your spouse and your kids and you're driving through an intersection, all of a sudden you get T-boned. And it kills everybody in your car except you. And now, there's a court date that comes up for the person who went through the other side of the intersection. I said, how will you feel when they tell the judge, hey, judge, um, yeah, I know that some people died in this accident, but, you know, I saw green. I, I didn't see red. I, I mean, it was green to me. Would that be an acceptable answer, college student? Right? This is, this is what we have to do. See, the reality is, is this. 
you know, when we, when we understand postmodernism, it's an illogical mindset. And they're trained in this illogical mindset. And it doesn't matter what it is in life. Anybody can be right about whatever they want to be right, and we're not, who are we to tell them that they are somehow wrong? Most often, though, that gets, this gets applied to things to do with morality, religious beliefs, things like that, right? Here's what's so ironic, is you have college students that are learning this through their four years, sometimes more if they really like it. <laughs> and they're learning this in college, and they're being told by these professors that, that truth is only relative. The same professors who are writing certain grades that aren't relative on their papers. What? The same students that are going to restaurants and a bill for $20 is there, they're not slapping down a five and walking out the door. So what's going on here? They believe in truth. Absolutely, they believe in truth. They are just taught not to acknowledge it in certain areas in life. This is what we deal with. So these same universities that are boasting about free thinking for students, everyone can be true about what they believe, right? Everyone can be right about what they believe. Oh, wait, there's an exception to that. <laughs> if you're a Christian with a one correct worldview, you're wrong. <laughs> but everyone else is right. <laughs> right. What, what an interesting mindset this is. So the same universities that promote tolerance for everyone, <laughs> except for Christians, the one correct worldview. Now, granted, this goes back again to what Andrew talked about yesterday and what I brought up earlier. Romans 1, everyone knows the true God that exists by his creation. The ones who don't acknowledge the truth suppress the truth about God and their unrighteousness. And what do they do after that? They make gods or idols in their own image, in images of animals and creeping things because we are made to worship. And if you don't worship the one true God, you're going to worship some other false God. So the same reason why you don't hear somebody use a curse word with Buddha or a curse word with the hundreds of millions of Hindu gods or the curse word of Santa Claus, they use the one true God as a curse word. Why does tolerance not work for Christianity but work for everyone else? Because deep down inside, they all know God's fake in all those false religions. And deep down inside, they know the one true God that exists. Think about that battle that's going on. Think about that suppression of truth with that beach ball we talked about earlier. The suppression that Andrew talked about yesterday. About the one true God. And then they got this illogical mindset put into their brains. This is what we combat. Oh, but, it's, but it gets worse. Think about this. We look at the generations Traditionalists born in 1945 and before. The baby boomers born in 1946 to 1964. Generation X, 1965 to around 1976. We can look at each one of these generations and we can peg them for exactly who they are. If you know somebody in that age range, chances are you know exactly what their mindset is. Right? Then we get to Generation Y, the Millennials. Interesting generation. I'm like right at the I'm right right at the gap between Generation X and Generation Y. I've got two younger brothers, just younger than me. They are full Generation Y Millennials. I am full Generation X, like completely separated. It's really interesting. But then you get to the Millennials, where postmodernism was really born and came to fruition and got a stronghold. They're known for this. Then you have Generation Z, born in 1996 and after, and they're very much postmodernists, but then they have some other kooky things with it. But this is what's really interesting about all this, 
is that unlike the baby boomer mentality, we don't see that in the millennials. We don't see the traditionalists in the millennials. But what do we see with postmodernism? It's infiltrated everybody. It is, it is so interesting to see. So it's not just talking to college students anymore that you're getting relativism. I have it from patients that are in their 80s. Completely against the fundamental mindset that they have been with all their lives. Again, I think it goes back to Romans 1. This suppression of the truth. So then anything else has to, you know, they can find truth somewhere. This is what we're combating out there. And, and I hope that, that what we gave you with this stoplight thing helps to put some light onto how to use examples like this. And you can come up with your own. You can use mine, whatever. But how to use this when talking to people. Establishing that truth does exist. Why? Because of statements like this. See, when people are searching for religion, I'm sure if I ask for a number of hands, for anybody who evangelizes, they've heard this before. Well, you know, I'm still searching. I'm still trying to figure it out, right? And I'll say, you know, hey, I'm going to help you cut to the chase on this. Because while you search through your dozens or hundreds or thousands of religions, however deep you decide to go in your search, the same way that we spoke to the New Age guy at breakfast yesterday morning, is that you're going to run across in your study on Christianity, you're going to run across John 14, 6, that says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, spoken by Jesus Christ. Every single person is going to have to deal with this statement. It's our job to bring it up. We establish with them that truth exists, right? Because you put clothes on this morning for a reason. You pay your bill. You stop at stoplights. You go in for your exams in college. Like you live by truths. And then you selectively and arbitrarily try to decide there's some things that you're just not going to, you're going to pretend that truth doesn't exist. But bottom line is you have to deal with this. At some point in your studies, was he telling the truth or not? Of course he was telling the truth. And we call people to repentance and faith, and we give them the gospel, but we tell them that you have to deal with this. Was Jesus on the truth or not? And so this is how we work these things out when we're, when we're witnessing to people. And I go into a lot more detail in this in the book if you want to learn more. Because, again, this is all about equipping. And, and I want you to, to really learn and, and understand this argument thoroughly. When we get down postmodernism, we understand that truth exists. It, it knocks down all those barriers out there. Because this is the objection that people are using today, is, is this idea of truth being fluid. Hence, we have gender fluidity. <laughs> Hence, we have all kinds of fluidity because they want to pretend that it doesn't exist. I, I, the gender fluid argument, I'll, I'll give you right now. This is, I gave this at a talk uh, about a month ago, a month and a half ago. So you can cut off all the body parts you want and try to change things up and try to pretend you're a girl when you're really born a guy and vice versa. But of the Trillions of cells in your body, guess what? Other than blood cells that don't have the XY chromosomes, every one of them says XX or XY. Truth exists. It's there. You know, and, and I say this jokingly, but I mean, think of how sad this is too. How grievous it is. Blatantly trying to ignore the truth. But it's out there. <clears throat> so we go on to our next objection. Evolution's fact. How many have heard this one? Probably everybody, right? Evolution's fact. Well, no. No, it's not. And we already talked about this biblical answer that from the Bible, the one and only witness of origins, of creation, we have an exact historical account and that we see that God created everything after its own kind, ten times the beginning of Genesis. 
evolution, evolution didn't happen. Now, of course, the unbeliever is not going to accept that as an answer. Doesn't mean we don't use the Bible. We always use the Bible. We always start with the Bible because it's the authority of the Word of God. The gospel is the power of God and salvation. God's Word is always effectual, whether it draws or repels, but it's always, always works. So we always use it. But having said that, we can use some apologetics. We can have some fun with some apologetics. And so I did this in New York two years ago. So Pastor Andrew and I, the same conference that he and I spoke at for the first time that uh, people loved me so much that I decided to run through his entire time. <laughs> the first time we spoke together at this conference, which we do now just about every year, um, we, we teach and then we go out and we witness for like three straight days and we take people on the streets and show them how to do it. Today, you know, as we go out, we'll figure out a time uh, later. You know, while we're at lunch, we'll figure out a time that we're going to go out this afternoon. No pressure. You don't have to get on a box and preach. You don't have to hand out a single tract. If you want to go and just observe, come out. There is no pressure whatsoever. Come out and do it. It's the same way we do it in New York. Um, we just want people to be comfortable and learn and ask us questions and see how it's done and, and just to make it a part of their life, Right. Well, in New York, I'm preaching on a box, and we're outside of NYU, so we've got all the really smart people at NYU and professors, the same place that Andrew referenced yesterday about the one professor. Well, this time, I was on the box two years ago, right before my book came out, and there was a guy who I found out his name was Rashid. He was standing there and just listening. And he was just shaking his head and shaking his head and shaking his head. And so finally I got done preaching. I got off the box and I went over and talked to him. And he, he is a molecular geneticist. He was just finishing his PhD. And he was, going to, he was doing research at NYU for you know, genetics research. So I mean, this is a really smart guy. He knows his genetics. And, and I asked him, well, why are you shaking your head? He goes, well, you know, I, I don't believe in God. And... and uh, He's like, evolution happened, and, and so I asked him this question, and this is, the, this is your takeaway here, is how does evolution supposedly work? Because to go from what they call a single simple cell, now, a simple cell is not simple at all. We'll discuss that in a few minutes, or in a minute here. But let's start with a single simple cell. And it has to evolve over time into the pinnacle of his creation, us, human beings. How many things have to happen for that to occur? How can that possibly occur? And there's only one answer. You're going to run into people who will throw all kinds of terminology at you. They're going to tell you, genetic mutations, and they're going to tell you genetic drift, and they're going to tell you natural selection, and blah, 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 blah. It doesn't matter. All those things go down to one specific thing that you need. It's you need genetic mutations, but not just any genetic mutations. You need genetic mutations that increase information over time, functional information over time. So the only way you can go from a single cell to a complex organism is you have to have information added into the genome over time. The only mechanism possible for that would be genetic mutations. So he acknowledged that after we cut through his fluff and all his terminology. Again, PhD candidate from NYU. So we cut through all the stuff and, and he acknowledges, yes, you need genetic mutations. I go, Rashid, I have a second question for you. How many mutations of the tens of thousands, probably more, that we've discovered, how many of them have ever been shown to increase functional genetic information? Zero. In fact, every single mutation that we find out there deletes information. You can look up a term called genetic entropy. 
scientists are confounded. They don't understand why they believe in evolution of increasing information over time, and yet genetic entropy says every generation has 50 to 100 more permanent mutations than their parents. And that at some point, the human race is going to get to a point where they can't even reproduce anymore because the genome is degrading over time. We have an answer for that. It's called a fall, or it started. They can't figure this out because it seems to be in direct opposition to what they call their theory. To which I responded to Rashid, I said, you know, maybe we ought to not call it a theory anymore because if we put it to the test of the scientific method and once you use an hypothesis that you can't even get through to become a theory, well, it's really only a hypothesis and if the hypothesis has been shown that you can't even do anything with it, well, now it's actually just a fairy tale. <laughs> which is exactly what evolution is, by their own standards. They have zero mechanism for it. Now, sometimes they'll tell you that, well, we have some beneficial mutations. Don't let them confuse you. On one hand, there's never been a mutation that increases information over time. None. The functional information. Now, sure, they can tell you that there's something called gene duplication, right? That you can have genes in one part of the genome somehow duplicate and add itself somewhere else. And we see this when some, with some of the retardations, you know, trisomy 21 and some things. But I'm like, is it really adding information if the genes that make my nose all of a sudden cause one to pop up on my hip? That's not new functional information, right? That's all gene duplication is. It means, means absolutely nothing. So, but they'll tell you about beneficial mutations. They say, well, we have beneficial mutations. We have bacteria that are now antibiotic resistant. See, evolution in action. And I say, well, hold on a second. What actually is antibiotic resistant bacteria? See, what it actually is, is you have a bacteria that has these little ports on it that allow nutrients in. This one port not only allows nutrients in, but it's also what the antibiotic attaches to to kill it. Well, this port just gets damaged because of one of the mutations. It's a loss of information. The port gets damaged. It just so happens, luckily, to now not allow the bacteria or the antibiotic to attach to the bacteria anymore. So in the specific environment of where the antibiotic is at, at a specific time, even though it's a loss of information, it just so happens to be a, a slight benefit take that bacteria out of that environment and put it into a normal environment, it's at a disadvantage. It's lost information, genetic entropy, and it, because it can't get that nutrient in anymore. Let's look at another one that hits closer to home with human beings. Sickle cell anemia. That's a disease, right? No, it's a beneficial mutation. If you're in an environment of malaria, so while we would acknowledge somebody to have the disease here in America where we don't have malaria, if you have, if you're in an environment with malaria, the malaria can't attack your red blood cells, the hemoglobin. So it's a benefit in a specific environment at a specific time, but take that person with sickle cell anemia, bring them to America, and guess what? They don't breathe as easily. They tire out with exercise easier, things like that. It's a problem. It's a, it's a bad genetic mutation. Just so happens to be of a benefit in a specific environment, specific time. So I, I hope we, we have an understanding of the difference here, differences here between the two. Macroevolution requires both benefit and adding information that's functional over time. And that has never been observed. That we can take to anybody on the street, including the top PhD scientists in the world, and they do not have an answer for you. They can't have an answer for you. They acknowledge that it doesn't work. Now, unfortunately, going back to Rashid, when I pointed this out to him and he acknowledged there's none, I said, why do you still believe in this? And he goes, I just believe we're going to find the answer one day. <laughs> and what's that? Romans 1. <laughs> Suppressing the truth about God and their sin. It's all it comes down to. So one of, the, one of the things I like to bring up here is this. This idea of random chemical reactions. Now, a jumbo 747 jet 
has over a million specifically designed parts, none of which can fly, none of which can reproduce, but are all assembled together and you have something that can fly. Now, if I took, to, took apart that same 747 that just landed, I take it all apart meticulously. I don't damage a single thing. I just put it in a pile. I will ask that person now, how many lightning bolts, whirlwinds, tornadoes, and earthquakes will it take before all those pieces will somehow randomly assemble and be able to fly again? Now they know the answer, right? So translate that to the single simple cell that has millions of pieces that are specifically designed that can't reproduce. that would have all had to been made at the exact same time, the exact same place, magically come together. Oh, and have the ability to reproduce. See, they can process this when it comes to an airplane, but then somehow magically the cell came together. So I'll, then I'll take it a step further. Let's take a bird. Don't actually do this at home. Take a bird, <laughs> put it in a blender, and just hit the blend button. <laughs> and you get bird soup. Right? I know, it sounds disgusting. Don't, like, don't do this. <laughs> Anthony, don't do this. <laughs> How long will it take of you shaking up the blender? Because you got all the parts for life. It's all there. It's all made. How long will it take before you shake this up, before that bird comes back together again? Come on, we all know the answer. And so does the person that you're talking to. And you're already starting with the parts. A single cell, you've got to find a way for those parts to all be made, designed, and then be put together. So this is how we can talk to people. Now, look, none of the stuff I'm going over in this hour or so, a little less, is going to cause people to get on their knees and repent. But what it does do, as Mark said yesterday, apologetics is designed to close the mouth of the unbeliever. And it's designed to close the mouth for us to be able to go through the law and the gospel with them. Because that is the power of God and salvation. So we use apologetics as our way of getting to the gospel as fast as we possibly can. And that's what these things do. It closes the mouth of the unbeliever. And that's where its value really is. So we're going to move on to the next big objection. This objection is probably the biggest, well, it's the biggest objection asked of the ministries in the country. So what Andrew gave before about biblical reliability, I think is the, is the biggest question asked on the streets by the unbeliever. This one is the biggest one that is submitted to ministries. So this one is not only from unbelievers, but it's also from believers. And the question is this, why do Bad things happen to good people. Pull almost every ministry out there, even creation ministries, and they will tell you this is the most asked question of them. It's not creation apologetics, it's this. So how do you answer this question? Now, of course, it comes in different forms, right? It's like, why do kids get cancer? Why did my loved one die? Um, unfortunately, as, I, as I'll give you another story here, I was... As part of being a dental practice owner, um, I get the opportunity to go to banks every week. For our, it takes about a half hour to do our business deposits, of which, while I'm talking to the teller, I will always witness. I'll find a way to get into a conversation. And, and the way I do is is like this. I say, oh, so um, what are you doing this weekend? And, uh, and she'll, she said, oh, well, I'm doing such, such, such. And uh, so when you ask this question, you seem interested, guess what they're going to ask you back? What are you doing this weekend? I said, oh, I'm glad you asked. So I'll be doing this, this, and of course I'll be going to church on Sunday. Do you go to church, ma'am? And, and she says, you know, I used to, but I don't believe in God anymore. What happened? And she said that, well, you know, my, uh, my best friend and her husband and their one-year-old child... Um, we're going to a Lutheran church, and and uh, and my husband and I were going with them, and we had been going to this church for a while. And you know, my my friend got into a horrible auto accident, and their one-year-old daughter died. And they went to get counseling from the pastor, 
And the pastor said, well, what sin do you have in your life that caused your child to get killed? I was flabbergasted to hear that. Sounds like Job, right, and his friends. And so, you know, I, I, she was crying, by the way, when all this happened. Because once I said what happened, she literally started crying. And then she shared this with me while she's processing deposits. And I had a chance to share the gospel. I had a chance to share with her the truth about why do, quote-unquote, bad things happen to, quote-unquote, good people. How would you answer this question? I would hope that after listening to my talk on foundations earlier, that you would have one of the answers. And I would hope that after listening to Andrew yesterday, you would have the other way to answer this question. So the biblical answer is this one. How do we define good and bad? No one is good but Christ, right? And that we walk somebody through Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Who's the author of death? Who's the author of all these bad things? It's not God. It's Adam and Eve, and, and <laughs> by federal headship, us. If you don't understand federal headship, by the way, remember when Bill Clinton had his affairs with Monica Lewinsky, and he went to China for a summit, and then they started asking him all kinds of questions about the affair? That was a reflection on who? Americans. When you go to a restaurant and get bad service, do you say that my server, Lynn, did a bad job? No, you say Red Robin did a bad job, right? Federal headship. Well, <clears throat> we, we can look at the biblical answer here. Adam is a federal head. We have a sin nature, but bad came into the world from him, right? This is our biblical answer to use. There's another answer, though, that Andrew gave yesterday, the precept answer. And it goes something like this. By stating good and bad, you are implying a moral standard. So what is your basis for an absolute standard of good and bad? Because if you're just pond scum that rearranged itself over billions of years and that is doing nothing but obeying the laws of chemistry and physics, how do you assign something to be absolutely good or absolutely bad? You can't. And so we can, we can navigate through this stuff for both a believer or an unbeliever by understanding the definitions and talking them through the moral arguments, defining good and bad, showing why their definition is wrong, their starting point's wrong, and we can walk them into now the question that they originally had, why do bad things happen to quote-unquote good people? Because none of us are good. God alone is good. And that bad entered in creation because of us. So that's how we can go through an answer. And I, and I give a lot more detail again in my, in my book on this. I'll share one other story with you. I don't know why I feel like stories today. but uh, <laughs> This one is, is another heartbreaking one. So as dental practice owners, um, my wife and I get a chance to witness to a lot of people in our, in our practice. It really is, is enjoyable. The church that we left about six years ago is a church that I was teaching creation in. And um, eventually there came some issues because a few of the elders in this church, it was, it's a mega church, so they have 20-some pastors and, and a huge elder board that's just reelected every two years and not biblical at all. Um, but this is where we were at. And um, long story short, we ended up leaving the church, you know, finding a more biblical church. We were hoping to as I did, meet with a pastor's head pastor multiple times and talk through and go through the Bible. And, and we did this about a number of things, including creation. Having said all that, they did not want literal creation taught in the church. They had elders who were evolutionists, and they wanted to keep the idea open that um, God could have used evolution and all kinds of stuff. And so the college students were being taught evolution by one of the elders. The Sunday school was being taught 
The first time I got in trouble at the church, by the way, is when I held a conference there and, and said that, hey, if you guys want to know what's being taught your children, you should probably go sit in Sunday school. It's your job, fathers, to go do this. Yeah, I got an email the very next day from, <laughs> from pastor for that. Um, but it's true. They were teaching evolution to, to the kids, right? Undermining everything scripturally. So having said all that, we leave the church. We have patience now. Father, mother, three kids. Their oldest child, this happened um, maybe a year and a half ago now. So we had left the church years ago. This family still goes. He, the father is prominent in the city that we practice in. And um, so everybody knows him. Well, his son just turned 21, was in a car with two other guys who just turned 21. The driver was drinking, went off the side of the road, hit a tree. The driver survived with barely a scratch. The person in the passenger seat went through the windshield and was paralyzed from neck down. The kid in the back went also through the windshield, hit a tree, hit the tree himself, and died. Well, he is the eldest child of our patient's family. Well, we went to the wake at our old church where it was held at, and there was a line out the door. We were in line for an hour and a half before we got up to the family. And the family knows where we stand. They know why we left the church. They, they know that we believe in so much more doctrine than what is being taught there on a very superficial level. And, and the father gripped around me, and he's like, I don't know why God did this to us. And all I could think about is, oh, you're at a church that doesn't have a foundation for where good and bad comes from. Because you believe that God could have used death and disease and suffering for billions of years beforehand, before sin, right? I mean, this is, this is the practical application of what happens, right? So this is why it's so important we get this right about good and bad and get this right about God and his creation and creating perfectly and that we are the authors of sin. Because what results is what happened to this family of patients where where they were left wondering why God did this to them. It's just tragic, tragic. Of course, we've talked to him multiple times. The wife now does not go to church anymore. Her husband still goes, but still has questions. Um, it's just really, it's, it's, a, it's a tragic, tragic thing. So you're going to get this question a lot, and, and, and I pray that you really study this out and, and understand it and how to answer this well. Okay, so we're going to move on to something a little bit more light now. <clears throat> who's, who's heard this one? The gospel's all about love, man. <laughs> right? I, I call this the hippie Jesus love. <clears throat> all the time on college campuses, and even sometimes in other places, I'm approached by people that say this. You know... I really appreciate what you are doing, but I think you're doing it all wrong because you're not preaching the gospel. You're not preaching about God's love. To which I respond, hey, you know what? Let's look up the gospel. Let's, let's, let's talk about this, right? I say, let's open our Bible up to 1 Corinthians 15 where, where Paul, who's writing to the church of Corinth, says this in verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. So right here, he says, this is the gospel I preached to you. And then I say, let's see what the gospel is now, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Did I miss something here? I don't see the word love. I see death, burial, resurrection, four sins, accordance with the scriptures. That's what I see. The simplest gospel message contained right here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Memorize those verses. It's so, it's so important in order to combat what this idea of the gospel is love thing. Now, don't get me wrong. 
God's love, as we see in 1 John 4, was made manifest in his son's death on the cross. Bring this out. But that's not, gospel is not love. The result of his love is the gospel. It's made manifest. For God so loved the world, gave his one and only son. Right? We see love forever linked with the son's death on the cross in scripture. Here's a fun piece of trivia. So the greatest evangelistic book ever written is the book of Acts, right? Where we see that, that Acts chronicles like 30 years of, of the spread of the early church, includes presentations, 13 presentations of the gospel to all kinds of different people. How many times does the word love appear in the book of Acts? I'll give you a hint the same amount of mutations that increase functional genetic information over time. <laughs> Zero. Again, God's love was made manifest in his son's death on the cross, but that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is a death, burial, and resurrection. And so that's what we need to, that's what we need to talk about. That's what we need to preach we just have to get the gospel right when we're out there. Oh, how about this one? <clears throat> God doesn't exist. How do you answer that one when somebody says God doesn't exist? Well, I'll tell you how I answer it. <clears throat> I will not allow them to tell me something that is contrary to God's word. Because what does God's word say again in Romans 1? Everyone knows the true God that exists by his creation. So when they tell me that God doesn't exist, I'll say, come on. You and I both know God exists. What happened? Almost always, you will have somebody that will start to talk. Some people, like the girl in the bank, just started crying, which happens on occasion as well, <laughs> out of nowhere. But never, never take God doesn't exist as truth. Because they, we, we know that they know he exists. And so our job is to kind of figure, tease it out, right? Talk to them a little bit. Have a conversation. And we're going to understand where, where they're coming from. Incidentally, when we talk about God doesn't exist, there are some people that get really, really angry once you say that. Very similar to what happened to the New Age guy's wife who walked up from the breakfast table, as Andrew told about from yesterday. She just walked up and huffed off and wouldn't come back, except for yelling at her husband that we need to leave. And he says, hold on a little longer, and kept doing it right. Why anger? Well, go back to this suppression of the truth. What happens? They're actively holding it down, and what are you doing? Prying their hands off that ball that they're trying to desperately hold down. So you're going to get some anger out of this as well at times, and that's okay. Um, we, we calm them down, we do this in love, and we preach the gospel, but, but these are the things you're going to hear um, when, when they give this objection, God doesn't exist, and that's how we handle it. Okay, so now we're going to get into some, some science stuff for the little bit of time we have left, and, and I won't be able to get through all this, but it's in my book. <laughs> it's there. So radiometric dating methods. You're going to hear this one a lot, right? Well, doesn't, doesn't radiometric dating methods prove that the Earth is billions of years old? Now, without getting into a ton of detail here, I will tell you this. We can look at radiometric dating methods kind of like an hourglass. So if an hourglass, this might be a trick question. If you come up to an hourglass and you see half the sand on top and half the sand on bottom, how much time has passed? Half the time? Are you sure? Do you know that it started with all the sand on top? You made a big assumption. How long does it take for the sand to come down? Does it come at a constant rate? In an hourglass, it does. But do chemical reactions always do that? 
we can speed up chemical reactions by heating it up, and we can slow it down by cooling it down. So we can affect the rate of chemical reactions. What if the hourglass didn't have a top on it, and so you were being really funny, and you decided when nobody was looking, you poured a little extra sand on top? You change the initial conditions. See, when we look at radiometric dating methods, we are using what's called historical science. We are trying to figure out what happened in the past using modern methods. The problem is, is we don't know what those initial conditions were in the past. We're making lots of major assumptions trying to pin down dates using radiometric dating methods. And you don't need to know a ton of detail about how all this stuff works. This is what you need to know. When we look at major radiometric dating methods, when they're dating rocks, so there's a difference between rating, uh, um, dating something that was once live, like a tree or an animal, versus something that was just rock. Now, the only exception is going to be things like oil and coal, which at one time were alive, right, and then smushed down and became oil. But um, those are what we call organic substances. Carbon-14 works really well on things that are full of carbon. For anything that's inorganic, we are going to use different methods. And so you've probably heard of uranium to lead, or potassium to argon, or rubidium to strontium, or samarium to neodymium. These are... These are Four, there's two different uranium lead ones, but there's four main methods, and then there's hundreds of other dating methods. Now, they all have sweet spots. They all have spots that say they should be pretty accurate between one and three billion years, or between half a, half a billion to three billion, or whatever it is. So they have, they have some, some accuracy like that, um, or, or supposed accuracy where they're, they're supposed to work well. Now, imagine I take a rock out of a rock layer. And it's in the sweet spot of four different methods. I should be able to test with all four methods and should get about the same date with all four methods of the same rock. Right? That makes sense. Is that what we actually find, though? Of course not. So when we look at one of the research studies out there called the Rate Project, done by some of the best creation geologists out there, they looked at what's called the Bass uh, Rapids Diabase Sill. And when you look at the four different methods they used, they come up with a half a billion years off between two of the four methods. We see another one here, the Cardinius Basalt, were over a billion year difference between two of the methods. How? See, they don't tell you this in science class. They, they just pick and choose. They cherry pick which ones they want to use to try to come up with their dating methods for layers. It shows there's some major problems with radiometric dating methods. We've got another example, which is really cool. Um, and by the way, you, there's a lot of rocks they've done this with, so you can, you can research that on your own. But I love the Mount St. Helens example. So Mount St. Helens that erupted in 1980 is about a 140th scale version of the Grand Canyon. Looks very similar, bird's eye view. And they tested rocks. So we have these on video, lava flow that hardens into rock. And we have video of this, Right? They've gone back and tested these things 25 years later. And guess what? These rocks dated in the millions to tens of millions of years old. Rocks that we have on video. There's a problem with these methods. One of the fun ones I like to use is carbon-14, if I'm going to talk about anything. And carbon-14 is unique. It doesn't have millions to billions of years of half-life. It has a half-life of 5,700 years. So what this means is if we start off with 100 pounds of carbon-14, after 5,730 years or so, we will not, what I start off with, 100 pounds, we'll only have 50 pounds now, 5,700 some years later. 
Another 5,700 years later, so we're at almost a little over 11,000 years, we now will only have 25 pounds. Okay? This is how radiometric dating methods are supposed to work and what the half-lives mean. Now, we can, we can debate how good this method is. I, I will tell you that the literature, there's, there's a lot of literature on this. Most of it is probably wrong because they make some of the same assumptions as what other methods are. But it is valuable in one key area, and it's this. It is known by both creation and secular geologists that carbon-14 can only be detected for something that, that is only about 100,000 years old or less. If somebody tells you on the streets that carbon-14 dated things at millions of years, they don't know what they're talking about. It can't work for that. It's, so it can only date things about 100,000 years, and some of the newest research suggests it's only about 60,000 years or less. This is where it gets really interesting now. If you have, if you have anything that is supposedly older than 100,000 years, it should detect, our, our instrument should detect no radiocarbon, no C14 in it. In fact, if every atom on the earth were made into C14, it would have all decayed away in less than a million years. It shows how, how short of a span C14 is. So what did some creation geologists do? They decided to look at some coal samples that are supposedly between 34 and 318 million years old. Now, we acknowledge the reason why we have coal, coal and oil is because of the flood, burying lots of live things all at one time. They think it was a slow, gradual process over millions to billions of years. In any case, if we would find carbon-14 in this coal, it cannot be millions of years. It can't be. It has to be thousands of years. Now, there's some argument as to how many thousands of years, but it can't be millions of years. So guess what? Every coal seam that was tested has carbon-14 in it. These dates are, are not right. We look at a, uh, I think this is, diamonds are a woman's best friend, right? Dogs are man's best friend. Uh, isn't that how it goes? So diamonds that supposedly are one to three billion years old to process, right? Under extreme temperatures and weight and pressure that these are supposedly billions of years old, compressing carbon into what we see as a diamond today. And diamonds are really interesting. Unlike the examples I used before where you can contaminate a sample, you can add some extra sand into the top of, of, a, of an hourglass, or you could add some extra potassium or argon into a sample, diamonds are pretty locked down. You, there's nothing that can really penetrate diamonds. So they can't, they can't get this type of contamination. Well, guess what? Every diamond that's ever been tested has what? Carbon-14. They're not billions of years old. They're thousands of years old. This is where it gets really fun, is dinosaur bones. Guess what universities will not let you test anymore for carbon-14? They won't do it. And part of the reason why is because there was a, there was a couple slicked, a slick creation geologists who took two blind samples of animal bones. Now, most of you don't know how these dating methods work and these labs work. When you submit something to a lab, you have to fill out a form that says how old you think it is, what you think it is, and then invariably when they return your sample to you with its date, it's going to come up somewhere around what you wrote down in your paper. Well, they tested these two bones, animal bones, and they got dates of between, well, for one, 9,800 years, plus or minus, the other one about 16,000 years. And guess what they were? They were Allosaurus bones that were dated to be 140 million years old. But in the carbon-14 dating, they were dating thousands of years old. When this study got published, they went berserk over it. And so now, a creation geologist can't even submit bones anymore <laughs> to these labs because they're afraid of this happening again. 
You may have heard of the issues of, of dinosaur bones being cut open, and what are they finding? Red blood cells, spongy tissue, things that they said could never last that long are there, and they have no explanation for it. You had a guy get fired a couple years ago from a major university because he broke open a triceratops horn, found spongy tissue in it. It's crazy. But again, the science, the good science supports what the Bible says. Vestigial organs. This is, this is a, a good one, too. So I'm sure most of us have heard this, right? Well, you know, the appendix is nothing. The tailbone's nothing. It's just left over from evolution. Tailbone used to be for a tail, and appendix seems to have no function. Well, we now know they have major functions. If you take out someone's cossacks, their tailbone, they lose attachment points for about a dozen muscles. Try sitting and standing up. You won't be able to do it very easily. <laughs> The appendix, when we get a, a, a problem in our gut, what happens? Our appendix pumps good bacteria back into our gut. They have functions. See, previous examples of these vestigial organs are things like the parathyroids, the pineal glands, pituitary glands, all things that today we know have major, major functions. So evolutionists have tried to change definition. They try to say, well, some of these things, well, you don't really need them, so they have to be vestigial, right? You can live without your appendage. You can live without your cossacks. And I say, tell you what, I will pay for you to have your arms and legs cut off and tell me if you can live without them, right? I mean, ludicrous stuff, but this vestigial organ argument is, is, is a horrific argument, and we understand that everything that is made in us is designed that way, but for the things that we see as genetic mutations, like wisdom teeth problems <laughs> in the mouth. All right, those are genetic mutations. At one time, they had a real function and a good function. So that's how we look at vestigial organs. <clears throat> I've got like three minutes left, so we're going to get through. Let me try to do a fun one. Oh, Lucy. Let's do Lucy here. <laughs> okay, there's like... 207 probable bones of Lucy. We have how many of them? 47 of Lucy. We have virtually no bones of the skull. Yet, we have lots of artist renderings of what Lucy looked like. And uh, so we get things like this for Lucy. Five different artists across the country having different renditions of Lucy. We have no clue, but you can see how museums can manipulate Lucy to making her look more human-like. This was an ape, an ape through and through, hip structure, everything, ape, but makes it look different. And then you see other artists that take it a step further, and they give different poses to make, them, make her look more human-like, holding a baby, whites of the eyes. They don't have white eyes. It's all dark, right? So this is how they're manipulating science books and, and um, natural history museums and whatnot. And I've got more about that in the book as well. So I'm going to end here on this one. This is a really good one. Are we 99.2% chimpanzee? This is what the claim is out there. Let me tell you how they arrive at this faulty number. They took the human genome and laid it out next to the chimpanzee genome. And then they looked at the regions that looked to be a little bit more similar, and they call those the hot zones. They take the hot zone. Within the hot zone, there's like super hot zones, and that super hot zone is 99.2% the same. That's where the number comes from. If you look at the genome in its entirety, we match up to a watermelon better. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, it's only like a 72% similarity between a chimpanzee and a human. Now, we're going to do some simple math here. This is really incredible. If we take the number of genes in the genome, and we know that only about 71%, depending on the study, 71% of it's the same. That means 39, I'm sorry, 29% is different. That means with all, with all the base pairs and the genes that make up our genes, right, there's going to be 765 million differences between them, between the humans and chimpanzees. 
for us to have evolved from them just a couple million years ago, you would have needed seven, at a minimum 765 million mutations all in the correct direction to go from a chimpanzee to a human. That means when we look in our fossil record, we, should, we have tons of chimpanzees, we have tons of humans. We should have 765 million times that amount statistically. That, that means we should have billions and billions and billions of these supposed transitional species between a chimpanzee and a human. And the best they can provide for us is just a handful of ones that we would argue are all apes or humans. Take it a step further. What about dinosaur to a chicken? How many billions do you need there? They're, they're just not present. As Darwin predicted in his book would be the downfall of the theory is if we never find all these transitions. And guess what? 150 years later, we haven't found them. On that, I'm ending with three seconds early. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.